Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm not your host, Emma Graney. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and I'm doing my best to fill in as Emma is out gallivanting about the globe. But fear not, folks, I've assembled a murderer's row of talent for today's episode. It's episode 290, the No Amnesty from Kenny edition. <laughs> Today, we have uh, Claire Clancy appearing in her final episode of the Press Gallery, as she is also heading off to gallivant about the globe. Claire, I am. how are you doing? Hello, I'm good. I feel like anyone who subs for Emma should do an Australian accent the whole time. Uh, I can do a Scottish accent, yeah. and that's about it. <laughs> that's close. Um, also, sitting next to me, education reporter Janet French. How are you doing? Good eye. There you go. You can do the Australian accent. No, exactly. no I can only okay. do British because I'm really British. I'm not Australian. Right. All right, right. then. And uh, all the way from Calgary through the magic of technology, Calgary Herald columnist Chris Varco. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I am not gallivanting anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and neither am I. I get, you know, I my knees get sore if I do any gallivanting. Frolicking is a stretch. Um, got a lot to talk about. It's been a busy week in Alberta politics, despite the fact that we're Right now, in the midst of a federal election campaign, um, man, Jason Kenney was busy this week. I will touch first on the war of words, uh, some very arcane or uh, big words as well from the premier um, that he had with Amnesty International. We'll touch uh, briefly on the fact that, hey, the legislature is going to sit earlier Um than we expected. Uh, we've got a couple other things we might get to, and of course, our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. But first, let's talk a war of words. You know, you don't want to come unarmed to a war of words. Jason Kenney came really armed to his war of words. Like the biggest thesaurus the ever. The biggest thesaurus ever. So, you know, as some people may know, listeners to the show, Alberta is conducting an inquiry into anti-oil Foreign-funded anti-oil campaigns. Um, Amnesty International doesn't like that. So, no. uh, Jana, what can you tell me about the uh, Amnesty International angle on this? Yeah, well, a little uh, earlier this week, I believe, he uh, he announced that there would be mechanisms by which uh, a the person running the inquiry could subpoena witnesses and um, call evidence to have a look into this this foreign interference that they say is foreign interference uh, in the reputation of Alberta's oil industry, and so um, there were there was some concern among I think probably among environmentalists and people who are in the activist community that um, there could be some targeting. Uh, of people just for basically speaking their minds about their concerns about the environment. And so Amnesty International, which does uh, some work highlighting human rights violations around the globe, uh, wrote a letter saying, uh, basically calling on Kenny to abandon the fight back strategy. And uh, it says, Alex Neve in his letter says things like, ensure that any initiatives to promote the oil and gas industry in Alberta are fully consistent with Alberta's international human rights obligations and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, and basically make sure that uh, Jason Kenney upholds any rights to freedom of expression, freedom of association, and peaceful protests, uh, and making sure that they uh, sort of prosecute or crack down on anyone making inflammatory statements or targeting people who are, you know, expressing their freedom of expression to criticize oil sands activity in Alberta. And he seems particularly concerned about the rights of Indigenous people um, and women and perhaps people who are non-binary. They, they, he keeps referring to people of all genders. 
And it also related within the fight back strategy, too, to the $30 million energy war room that um, Kenny announced uh, many months ago, uh, just talking about, you know, how can they um, pr- yeah, prevent uh, basically criticism against oil and gas industry. So the public inquiry itself and then that energy war room, I think, were the two things that Amnesty has voiced a lot of uh, opposition to. And part of this also was a website that the government had set up to allow people to submit information? What kind of information were they looking for through this website? Yeah, what's interesting is um, they set up a a website, albertainquiry.ca, which allowed anyone um, in Alberta to uh, submit. It was a very kind of broad description that the government said. It was anything that you think might be relevant to a public inquiry into anti-oil and gas environmental campaigns. Obviously, that's not exactly the language they used, but it means that potentially are you looking for academics? Are you looking for advocates? Are you looking for oil and gas industry reps to submit random criticisms? Like it's it's very vague to the point that I think when you have something like a public inquiry asking the public for feedback when this is such a contentious issue could, you know, lead to obviously has led amnesty to think this is problematic. Let's break down what the inquiry is actually looking into. I know everyone has turned it into a report on Albertan activities, hashtag (laughs) on social media, and there's a lot of people having fun with it. Even I cracked a joke. Someone was complaining about a pickup truck that was quadruple parked. And I said complaining about big trucks is definitely an Albertan activity. So (laughs) it's fun on social media. Trust me. Go on Twitter. (laughs) Check out the AB Ledge hashtag. It's a barrel of laughs. So Claire, what, what is the inquiry actually looking at? Right. So the inquiry is split up into two phases. And the first phase is being described as a fact-finding phase through a combination of interviews and research. And then the second phase is potentially going to be public hearings if necessary. And I think that's where people's um, kind of alarm bells went off because the question is, what would a public hearing into anti-oil and gas um campaigns look like. the There's supposed to be a final report that's going to be made available to the public by July 2nd, 2020. Um, but it's, it's spurred uh, critics, including people like the NDP, to ask, what what is this a type of witch hunt? No, this is anti-oil campaigns that are funded by certain groups or what yeah. Like what are they targeting here? The it's into any international campaigns that are supposedly targeting the province's energy industry. Um so yeah, you're right, foreign funded campaigns. And I think the examples that have been given um relate to uh the Tides Foundation, which we've heard brought up uh, many times in in different scrums with Kenny and and media events. Um but you know, going through this information, there's definitely a lot of uh, the, I think there's maybe a lack of clarity about exactly what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Which leads to all of the chatter about alleged McCarthyism and, and things like that. So that brings us back to this week. Amnesty International tees off on uh, the Alberta government and the inquiry and the website and the war room. And Jason Kenney took umbrage with that. Who wants to weigh in on on uh, the multi-hundred word letter that was uh, sent. I won't mind jumping in on this one. Um, <laughs> Have at her. <laughs> this is uh, five pages of, as you said, a, uh, a full-on sort of attack slash uh, almost a parody of uh, of what you might expect the response to be. 
normally to these kind of uh, these these kind of letters coming from Amnesty International. I, I think Jason Kenney or whoever wrote this letter for him really enjoyed the job that they were given here. <laughs> you know, there, there's a line, there's a couple of lines in here which are just classic. It said, you know, it can't be easy being the longtime head of Amnesty International Canada, stuck in an annoyingly free and peaceful Canada having to work yourself up into high dungeon to denounce a democratically elected government peacefully standing up for its citizens. I mean, there's just, there's just a number of classic lines here. But basically, what the premier was doing was disassembling the whole idea that somehow you have to remind Albertans that they shouldn't violate human rights or that they have human rights obligations at the same time that there are many countries, in fact, most oil-producing countries around the world, don't have anywhere near those kind of standards. And he goes out to point out Russia, for instance, or what's going on in Venezuela or Saudi Arabia as well. So, I, I, you know, in some ways, this letter and the timing of the letter from Amnesty International is perfect for Jason Kenney. It plays as a perfect foil for him to sort of stand up and defend. Uh, and he, he would see it as standing up to defend the energy industry, but also it sort of allows him to attack the enemies. And it comes right at the time of a federal election, and that probably can't be missed out as well. So um, it's definitely worth giving a read if you've got... 25 minutes or whatever it takes to get through it all. I think everyone should read definitely both letters because yeah. I think Amnesty also yes. does raise a lot of critical questions. And I actually want to read one of the things they said in their letter, which I think is something that really stood out to me, is they said that they want to see the Alberta government ensure that public funds will not be used in any way that leads directly or indirectly to the harassment, surveillance, or criminalization of human rights defenders who oppose or criticize your government's energy agenda and its implications for the rights of Indigenous people in the global climate crisis. And I thought that was very, um, like a very kind of succinct wording of maybe what some of the concerns are, because potentially if this leads into a phase two where there are public hearings, would that lead to the harassment of people who have a different viewpoint? And maybe not necessarily harassment by the authorities tasked yeah. with this, but harassment exactly. by the the angry troll mob. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. And and we know that the the political discourse has, has been quite coarsened over the last few years, and there are people out there who uh, see these instances as opportunities to take swings, both figuratively and in some cases physically, at uh, people they see as opponents. Chris, I, I wanted to get your sense though. Who was Jason Kenney speaking to with this letter? Was it really a letter directed at Amnesty? Obviously, he was responding to the letter from Amnesty, and I'm sure he took great joy in taking wax at their argument. Um, but was he actually speaking more broadly to Albertans or to his base or Canadians? Where does this kind of fit in in the conversation around his government and this inquiry? I, I think the answer is all of the above. I mean, it is a direct response to, to the letter from Amnesty International. Um, but I think it's also uh, a response to Albertans and to Canadians writ large that this government is going to stand up for the industry. And, uh, and really, he spends five pages going through all of these sort of point-by-point -point sort of counterpoints to the letter from Amnesty International. But as I said, I think this really is a bit of a perfect foil. You know, the, the whole incident is, is a perfect foil. It came up just before he went on stage up at the Oil Sands show up in Fort McMurray. And 
I think at that time he referenced the fact that when he was in, I think it was high school, that he was involved or maybe even helped set up an Amnesty International chapter. Uh, so the timing of this coming just before a federal election, coming just as this public inquiry is getting going, uh, is, is sort of perfect for, for him and his government, I think, in their view, to be able to say, look, you know, we're going to push back. I guess this is the kind of thing we should expect to see from the war room that, you know, and I wonder whether this was the war room that actually wrote this letter or whether Jason Kenney stayed up for four hours to do this uh, sometime in the last couple of nights. Mm-hmm. But he never actually does address their concerns about human rights in all those words in his letter. He never does address the concerns about freedom of speech or potential targeting or documenting of people who are who consider themselves environmentalists. And I think, yeah, and I think what's interesting about the letter is that it goes back to this narrative that we've heard time and time again saying, well, Canada is a very responsible oil producing country and pointing out those examples, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Russia. And that's something that, you know, Jason Kenney, we've heard in speeches for years and years, like even when he was a federal minister. Um, But yeah, Janet's right. What about the actual questions that were raised about what this inquiry could do or what what kind of challenges human rights activists who aren't on the side of the Alberta government are going to face? Yeah, what Mm -hmm. protections are in place for people who are potentially compelled to be called as witnesses? The Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and we do have freedom of association. We do have freedom of speech in this country, and and, we hope that those are upheld. But the fact that we're having an inquiry isn't evidence of itself in itself in and of itself that those rights are at risk yeah he makes that point i mean he does respond but it's just a very quick you know response to it saying you know as for your concerns about freedom of expression those rights aren't threatened our intent is to counter the misinformation and exaggerations out there so i guess the question is what is an exaggeration and a response to exaggeration versus what is a harassment or or threatening people's freedom of speech uh that's kind of the issue here that's at play I do want to touch on one other thing. You mentioned the his speech up at the Oil Sands Conference where he addressed one other issue. But I want to jump ahead a second because um, we talk about the government and their inquiry and Jason Kenney being very busy this week. I think a lot of people had expected with a federal election campaign that the workings of the government of Alberta would kind of slow down a little bit. We received word just this morning <laughs> nope. that nope, <laughs> no break for you. Um, the government house leader, Jason Nixon, has uh, written to Speaker Nathan Cooper uh, requesting that the government be reconvened like October 8th. Two weeks early. Mm-hmm. Uh, what could be the reason behind this, Claire? Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, Jason Kenney, as soon as he was elected, he said, we're going to be working all summer, passing legislation all summer. We saw a very intense summer session. Uh, there was a little bit of a reprieve, maybe, uh, but honestly, there were still announcements constantly happening. And I really think that this just goes back to the UCP having this attitude of saying we're going to push through as much po- as possible, as quickly as possible, make the changes we said we would do in our election platform. Obviously, um, you know, it's no secret that the Alberta provincial government will be supporting Sheer in his federal election bid. So I think maybe by convening two weeks early, we're going to be able to see, um, you know, maybe an opportunity to pass interesting legislation before a federal election that will probably suck up a lot of the energy um, post-October or Mm -hmm. like during that time and later. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's just a complete assumption on my part, but I'm assuming they're calling session because they have some legislation 
legislation that they're interested in bringing in. Did either of the two of you have any indication of, of things that didn't get done in the first go round with this government that they're looking at getting done in the fall? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say actually no, because they did pass 13 bills. Um, and that was and it was really really intense. And it was all the bills that they flagged as the most important ones to get passed early. So for example, repealing the carbon tax. Uh, We've talked about on the podcast before the legislation that we know for sure will come forward. Um, But I don't think there's any massive piece of legislation that they missed that we're waiting on. Janet, on the education file, is there anything that Um, you think they could look at? Well, yeah, we're expecting something on the Choice in Education Act, which, which was a very sort of nebulous, high level... Um, promise or commitment in the UCP platform. And it just talks about legislation reinforcing pa- the parental, the role of parents in, in their children's education and their rights, which is sort of spelled out in, in little different pieces of different federal and provincial legislation right now, but sounds like they want to formalize it. But I think there is some concern or curiosity about with, will this legislation actually have mechanisms to increase uh, or bolster the number of private schools or the rights of private schools? You know, we've already seen regulations change to lift the cap on the number of charter schools mm-hmm. and the ability of charter schools. So I think that's one thing to watch for. Um, I just wonder if there's anything in the McKinnon report, though. Were there anything? Were there any suggestions in the McKinnon report that point to potential legislation that maybe? We're not in the platform, or that we that might be under contemplation now. Chris, what do you what do you think about that idea? The uh, that they may need to get some legislative ducks in a row to deal with some of the issues in the McKinnon report before the budget, which was supposed to come in late October. Also, wondering if you think that it might mean we'll get a budget before the federal election. I'd be amazed if we saw a budget, particularly if it's a budget with some bad news that comes before the uh, the federal election. It would just provide some ammunition for, uh, I would think, Justin Trudeau and, and, and the Liberals, particularly in some of the tighter races in Alberta, not that there's a lot of them, but mm-hmm. whatever there are, to, to <laughs> say, look, this is what a conservative government would do federally. Just take a look at what Jason Kenney is doing up in Alberta. So I, I would be amazed if there was any kind of move to introduce big chunks of the budget or actually release the entire budget prior to the federal election. So why do you think they're coming back early then? That's a very good question. I actually don't know whether they've got other legislative things that they've got to get ready or whether they want to clear the decks before the budget comes down uh, sometime after the 21st. I know that they've talked about things like uh, the Aboriginal Opportunities Corporation. They've got an AER review that might require some legislation as well. But I'd be really curious to know what is the legislation they want to introduce before the budget is introduced. And I can't give you that answer. Does it have anything to do with labor, I wonder? I mean, that's sort of the big flashpoint right now. Yeah. I guess we'll see. October 8th, the day after the English language federal leaders debate, the one that Justin Trudeau was participating in. He didn't even look at his calendar. He just had that date like October 7th. in his head. Well, because I talked about it on my other podcast uh, the yeah, other yeah. day. You know, I'm just a <laughs> font of information, folks. Um, speaking of the election... One of the big things that Justin Trudeau had tried to do uh, in 2015 and also through his first term in office as prime minister is talk about the ability, but also the need to balance the environment with the economy. Uh, He's uh, 
you know, the fame, federal government famously bought and paid for the, is paying for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but also brought in some bills that are controversial in Alberta, the Bill C-48, which is the tanker ban off uh, northwest coast of BC, and Bill C-69, which changes a whole bunch of regulatory aspects of the, the process to get major infrastructure projects like pipelines approved. Jason Kenney announced this week that his government is uh, launching a constitutional challenge of Bill C-69. Claire, kind of break down how that was announced. Sure, yeah. He um, he w- he made the announcement during a visit to Fort McMurray where he was speaking at the oil sands trade show. Um, and yeah, basically, this is not a surprise to anyone. We, you know, Jason Kenney has talked at length about the fact that he would be making a constitutional challenge against Bill C-69, the Impact Assessment Act. And that federal piece of legislation, as uh, Dave said, it overhauls the federal regulatory process for energy projects. So it would change things like timelines for project approval, what's required in terms of environmental assessments. Um, And what's interesting is that this has been an unpopular piece of legislation in Alberta uh, since it first came into the public consciousness because, you know, former Premier Rachel Notley on the NDP um, side of the political spectrum also spoke in opposition to it. Where the two of them differed, though, was that uh, Notley said that there was a way forward with Bill C-69, where she felt like if enough amendments um, to allow for Alberta projects to go forward were made, she would have been in support of Bill C-69, although she continued to speak out against it up until the election when um, she lost to Jason Kenney. Um, In contrast, Kenney has been more vocal about saying, you know, we completely disagree with it. Although there have been times when he hasn't completely dismissed the idea of amendments making it possible for Alberta to support this federal legislation. But anyway, this uh, constitutional challenge, not a surprise to anyone. um, And we'll see what happens. I think it obviously does speak to what the priorities are going to be during a federal election campaign. What does he call it? The No More Pipelines? The No More Pipelines Law. Act. Yeah. The No More Pipelines Act. So, Chris, do you think the timing of this you know, knowing a federal election was coming is strategic on the part of the Alberta government to launch the challenge right as Canadians are going to the polls and keeping the pipeline issue uh, in the national conversation? Or is it just a case of getting the challenge out there as soon as possible and the and the timing is just coincidental? No, this is this is pretty much all about politics. Um, you know, the, the, the act was proclaimed. The government has said that they were going to do this for for months, basically, since even they were elected, they would say this was going to take place. We've got an election being called. We've got uh, the federal natural resources minister who is behind or partly behind the Bill C-69, Amarji Sohi up in Edmonton, uh, who's obviously trying to win re-election. Uh, I think this is pretty much all about the politics. Now, the arguments themselves uh, will take months and maybe years to play out. I mean, we're talking about jurisdictional and constitutional issues. Where do the rights of the province for resource development begin and end versus where do the federal government's rights over uh, environmental regulations uh, and energy uh, developments as it relates to pipelines that go across the border begin and end? So these are really complex issues, uh, but we're not going to have any resolution on this for, for, you know, months or, as I say, years. But the politics of it is immediate. So what is the, this is the argument that the government is making that uh, Bill C-69 steps on Alberta's constitutional jurisdiction over 
energy, correct? And the I think the argument the Alberta government continues to make and that uh, Rachel Notley made as well is that B- Bill C-69 would effectively prevent Alberta from being able to approve any new um, large energy projects and pipelines. And that what happens in a province in terms of those approvals, you're right, is provincial jurisdiction. Although the constitution does seem to side with the federal government on that in terms of the fact that uh, it's a federal resource, although obviously that will be decided in court. And how have the, the federal liberals responded to this? Federal Natural Resources Minister Amarjeet Sohi, who represents a riding in southeast Edmonton, um, obviously, I guess oh, he's actually not a minister right now. He's a liberal candidate in southeast Edmonton, isn't he? We've got to use our election words. Yeah, right. back to uh, that. Don't call anybody prime minister. There is no prime minister. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, uh, he did respond to Kenny and just said, like, look, I'm pretty confident that when we did write this bill, given all the issues we've had with federal approvals of energy projects, that we're quite confident that this bill pertains specifically to federal issues. So he sounded pretty confident about it. I think it's also really interesting that Saskatchewan yesterday applied for intervener status in support of Alberta's uh, case. Go Saskatchewan. Here's what Don Morgan said, my old (laughs) pal from Saskatchewan. He's the attorney general there. He says, it's important and absolutely imperative for us that we stick up for where the rights of the province are and the ability to regulate business and regulate industry in our province. He's very concerned about Saskatchewan's vibrant oil and gas industry. I mean, no no disrespect to Saskatchewan is we are all equal partners in confederation, but it's kind of like when the little sibling is standing up for the big sibling yeah. when they're in trouble with the parents. But I think that the no. province is, like, there's, is, there's yeah. more than just one province that is, that is interested in this case. And I'd be amazed if there's not multiple provinces joining this dispute. I mean, there's obviously the politics of the day that are going on here. And it's you know no coincidence that the conservative premiers here are the ones trying to pick a fight with the federal liberals. But I think there are bigger jurisdictional issues here that I think other provinces, like I'd be amazed if Quebec at some point doesn't get involved in this litigation as well. These are cases that the Supreme Court are going to have to decide where do the rights of the federal government begin and end and where do the, the province's rights which include the rights for resource development in the country beginner and these are pretty big fundamental issues and thus goes the canadian circle of life <laughs> we'll be debating you know provincial federal jurisdictional issues i think until we're all well dead yeah yes okay so now we're going to jump to our regular segment on here good stuff from the gallery wherein we tell you how you should spend your free time Basically, yeah, it's uh, anything, uh, we recommend things that we've seen or read or heard about. Um, Janet, why don't you start us off? I would recommend that you quit your job and travel the world (laughs) and just burn it all down, leave it behind. (laughs) Yeah. But that's not my ability. I don't have the ability to do that. Anyway, uh, or you could just read this great article that ran in the Washington Post, um, which is actually written by an independent news outlet I'd never heard of called Kaiser Health News. They did a really fantastic, they did some great journalism here, a deep dig into the UVA health system in Virginia. And well, why should you care? Because we're all having these conversations right now about private health care versus public health care. And what they were able to very systematically and methodically prove was that this um, actually publicly funded health system in Virginia was running a very, very aggressive campaign to recoup any unpaid medical bills. And it was responsible directly or indirectly for divorces, house foreclosures. People had liens placed on their property. There, if, if they were employees of this health system or other public entities, they had their workplace checks garnished. It 
it, it's just a really fantastic piece of journalism. Chris, do you have anything for us? Um, well, I was going to mention a New York Times article that I read yesterday on the history of grifting and uh, basically con artists, which is interesting. But instead, I'm going to choose um, some recordings that I'm listening to right now, the complete galaxy recordings of classic alto saxophonist Art Pepper. If you're looking to hear 18 hours of fantastic music, and that literally is how many as how much time there is, 137 songs, I'd highly recommend it. Amazing. We're, we're awesome. trying not to laugh. <laughs> that, look, that sounds amazing. It's fantastic. <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking for something to listen cool. to in the evening, late in the evening, that is where I would go. All right. I'm going to recommend uh, a podcast. It's uh, ESPN 30 for 30 podcast. Season five is all about Donald Sterling. It's called The Sterling Affairs. Uh, it's about the former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. He came to notoriety I think for many reasons through the league, but I think he broke through to national consciousness when an audio tape of him uh, berating his mistress for hanging out with black men, including Magic Johnson, and bringing them to the uh, LA Clippers games. It kind of sent shockwaves through the league. Um, the series deals with uh, his rise to prominence as an, as an NBA owner, uh, some of his issues as a real estate developer and landlord, and concerns about racism and how he practiced that business and how that may have carried over into how he ran the Clippers. Um, I'm on episode four of five right now. It's a fascinating listen about race and money and power in sport. It's a great series. Claire, you get the last word. Yeah, Bring it home. last word. Um, I'm going to recommend my favorite podcast, which is Ear Hustle. I thought this was your favorite podcast. And <laughs> yeah, her second is, favorite definitely. podcast. Um, Ear Hustle is my favorite podcast. I've recommended it a couple of times, but it's such a great listen, and um, it's something I listen to all the time. It's a pick me up. It's so interesting. It takes place in San Quentin Prison um, in the U.S., and it's made by prisoners inside the walls, and it's all about their lives. Um, but I would recommend that. And I just do want to say thank you to everyone for the kind words in the last week um, about my departure. I said goodbye to Emma on the po podcast last week, and um, it was a really hard decision to leave the journal. There are so many amazing journalists who work here and do such incredible work, um, you know, despite a lot of um, pushback that we continue to get in our daily jobs, like all journalists around the world. Um, so I just want to say continue to support the journal and and all the amazing reporters and editors. And I can't thank everybody enough for the last three years because it's been an incredible experience. Well, we know Aww. you're going to be missed in the newsroom. Listeners of the podcast will definitely uh, miss hearing you and your insights every week. Uh, so thank you uh, for the, your work the last three years. Uh, you know, it, we will be down one next week. We'll be missing uh, Claire greatly, but don't forget to tune in next week uh, for more political news on the Press Gallery. <laughs>